Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I am Rob King. So glad that you're joining me today as we continue through First Peter. And I can tell already as I was studying for this, oh, this is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be tough to get through this particular passage. I'm so glad that you're listening. Uh, and you're listening because you love the Word of God. You understand that the Word of God is what changes our lives. It's what the Holy Spirit illuminates and the Holy Spirit uses to change us and to make us more like Jesus. If you've been wanting to grow in Christ-likeness, then this is a key way to get into the Scriptures and understand what God intended when He wrote them. So glad that you're joining us. How can—here's the first question—how can we be so sure that the suffering we're going through will lead us to victory and triumph? Remember, this is the point of the Apostle Peter's letter. He's writing to dispersed, persecuted Christians and encouraging them that victory comes through the path of suffering. Remember, I'm going to say that again, because that's not very common in our theology and our Christian thinking in our culture today. Victory comes through the path of suffering. In other words, suffering is actually a part of our Christian life that God uses to refine us and to make us kind of mold us into his image. We used to sing a song in church, make me, mold me, what do you say, mend me, use me, fill me, all these. This is what he uses. This is what he uses, victory. And this means that no matter what you're going through, you're in the perfect situation right now to lean into your relationship with Almighty God, have him by the power of his Holy Spirit working through his word to make you into what he wants you to be. What does he want you to be? Easy. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to actually be like Christ. Me too. It's a shame that so many messages uh, we hear <laughs> only address like felt needs. The message goes like this. If you accept Jesus into your life, he'll forgive all your sins and bring you personal peace and bring you all the joy you could ever want and bring you contentment and happiness and success. And uh, even though a number of those things may be true in terms of joy and peace and forgiveness of sins, I'm reminded that that's not the primary point of the death of Christ and his resurrection, his ascension, salvation. So I'll ask you another question. Why are you living for Christ? How did Jesus describe living for him? He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And the disciples were like, wait, 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 wait. We were wanting you to powerfully set up your kingdom here on earth, and now you're talking about death and following you to the cross. And this was, I think, in Mark 8 is the first time he had mentioned the fact that he was going to die. When he told the apostle Peter, I'm going to die, the apostle Peter said, no way, over my dead body, basically. I paraphrase there. And that's where Jesus told the apostle Peter to get behind him. He didn't understand that this Christian life isn't about our comfort, but it's about our salvation. I think in some ways we've sold people a bill of good. Is it a bill of goods? Yeah, where they they think they're getting something when they give their life to Christ, but they're getting something completely different, so their expectations are all jacked up from the beginning. I may be going off a little bit even as we get started. People would say, you know what, well, why won't God answer my prayers just like I've asked him to answer them? And this kind of thinking is backwards. It reveals a false expectation about our Christian life. The goal of our entire life is the glory of God to be transformed, sanctified, made into His image. 
And when that becomes the point, then we can see everything we're involved in right now in our life, God can use that to make us like Jesus. In, in one way, it's like there's no bad news. Yes, you're in the middle of a situation that you'd prefer not to be in, but imagine the work that God is doing in you right now to make you more like him. My experience is, uh, my experience is that uh, I don't grow near as much on a mountain, a mountaintop experience, as I do in a valley. And this is the point of this next section that we get into here with 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22, the Apostle Peter is going to tell us how we can have triumph as we look to Christ and his suffering. Remember, in the last portion, he told us about uh, our suffering and suffering for wrong and how to do that, suffering for good or suffering for evil. But now he's going to continue to talk about suffering. When we see how he suffers, Jesus that is, how he suffered and became totally triumphant, it gives us hope in our suffering that we'll join him in this victory. So I'll read the passage, and then we'll break it down as we like to do. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, here's what he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept uh, waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Having gone into heaven... God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. After reading that, I'm realizing there is so much in this passage I hope we can get through. I hope we can get through all this today. There's a lot in there. This is the time in the podcast where I remind you that it is your reading through the Scripture and that changes you. And as we're reading it, we don't say, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? No, the better question is, what did the Holy Spirit intend when he had Peter write this? What did God intend when he wrote this? I'm going to just go ahead and give you the solution to the passage here at the beginning to clue you in to the idea that the Apostle Peter is sharing. It's this. Here it is. Jesus Christ gives us a perfect example of how suffering accomplishes the glorious saving purposes of God. In this passage, I'm going to point out maybe three or four variables of the Lord's victory. What does the Apostle Peter say about the victory that Jesus won? There's four of them, and we'll start with this one. First of all, Jesus, we're to look to Jesus, right? He suffered, he was perfect, and now we're going to look to him. The Apostle Peter says, okay, you're suffering, and and, and it's going to lead to triumph. Let me prove it. Look at what happened when Jesus suffered, and he was led into victory. So the first one is this, Jesus victoriously shouldered our sin. He victoriously took on all of our sin. He begins this passage by saying, for Christ also died once, or or, for sins once for all. (laughs) All of us at times are tempted to throw a little pity party, I suppose. It's easy to get so focused on ourselves, feel sorry for ourselves, for the things we've had to endure in life. And this 
This is why thinking of the crucifixion of Christ is so helpful. Why? Because in all of our suffering that we've ever done, we've probably played a part at least in some of it. We haven't been perfect. So uh, there's probably not a single time in your life where you've suffered unjustly and it's been 100% the other person's fault. Probably not. There's probably even a kernel, a grain, a little bit of something that you did in there. Even if we haven't played a part in our suffering, let's say it has been completely the other party's fault, we still have to admit that we're sinful people. And therefore, I can't claim total innocence in any time in my life. This is where Jesus Christ is completely other than we are. Completely other. He was perfect. He never sinned. He was always doing exactly what the Father wanted. He never sinned in his mind or in his intentions or in his actions. He never sinned against any person ever in word or in deed. And yet he was betrayed and suffered the most horrible kind of death on the cross. No matter what injustice we may see in the world, and there's plenty of it to be seen, there is never going to be a more clear picture of absolute injustice than the crucifixion of the perfect and holy Savior of the world. I guess that's a way of saying that we have no excuse to complain (laughs) about what we're going through when we look at what Christ endured for our salvation. But again, I'm reminded of what David said, you can pour your heart out before the Lord. I'm just saying that pity parties are futile. I know, I've thrown a lot of them. You end up being alone and it doesn't solve anything. He died, this passage says, once for all. Isn't that a beautiful statement? In other words, there were millions of sacrifices that were made, a quarter million sacrifices sacrifices of like lambs in one Passover, I read. In one year of the Passover, a quarter million lambs would be slaughtered. But now, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, died once for all. Not only did the perfect one die, but he died for those who are completely imperfect and fallen. So you have this perfect one dying for those who are dark, wicked, and fallen. This is what is meant when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And why did he do this? In order to bring us to God. Isn't that great? We don't find God. We don't look for God. We don't even really search for God. We're brought to God by the death of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you recall when Jesus was being crucified, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was signifying an entrance that could now be made because of the death of Christ. In other words... We were, because of the death of Christ, we are now able to access the Holy of Holies through Him. The only way we can come boldly before the throne of grace is because it is a throne of grace to those of us who believe. It's been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And instead of that throne being a throne of judgment, For those who don't believe, it will be that. But for those of us who trust in Him, we can now come boldly, make our request known without fear. The Spirit of God within us cries out, Abba, Father, which means help, Dad, help, 
We now have that great gift, not because of anything that we've done, but yet while we were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of everything that Jesus Christ has done. Every bit of suffering that he went through brought him to a place of complete victory. Jesus victoriously shouldered our sin. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. All of our sin. Now, the second thing he did, he victoriously preached. This is an interesting part of the passage. It says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. What in the world is he talking about? Now, as I read that, you think about the Apostle Peter telling us what Jesus was doing when he was crucified. Listen, his body was completely dead. And then he went and preached to those who were in prison. What? When? Where? To whom? Okay, the first point of clarity is this, that Jesus actually died in the flesh. You remember the Roman soldiers went to break the legs of all those who were hanging on the cross in order to make it impossible for them to breathe any longer, and they did this as common practice. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. By the way, that fulfilled a prophecy from, I think it was Isaiah, and uh, that not a bone of his would be broken. And... Then, just to make sure that he was dead, they pierced his side. Blood and water came out, thus making very clear physiological proof, signifying the fact that he was indeed dead. We also need to remember that these men were professional executioners. If they knew anything, they knew when someone was alive and when someone was dead. I'm only saying this because there are some who teach that Jesus didn't fully die. But we know from Scripture that he did die in the flesh completely. The Apostle Peter then says he was made alive in the Spirit, which simply means that his Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, was still alive. His body had died, but his Spirit never did die, and this is how he would go and make this proclamation to the spirits now in prison. There's much I could say about the spirits that are now in prison, the ones he's going to go speak to, because there's a lot to that, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can. These spirits who were now in prison, that the Apostle Peter referred to, who were once disobedient, are simply demons that have been locked away since the time of Noah. There are particular demons that have been locked away since Genesis chapter 6. They were punished at that time for their interactions with human beings. You have to read the account of Noah in order to get into all of that detail. Suffice it to say that there were demons that had crossed a line and then dwelt in people during the time of Noah. Remember that Noah and his family was building this ark. He preached for 120 years to all those sinners around him. For 120 years, his preaching fell upon deaf ears. Not one of them was saved or converted. The only ones that were saved were the eight family members of Noah, and God destroyed, killed the rest of the world. And God had a special, more severe judgment for those demons. At that time, he locked them away. This also explains why the demons that Jesus encountered in the demoniac, remember this? They begged Jesus not to be cast into the pit, not to be locked away in the pit. They would rather go into those pigs. There was about a thousand, or was it two thousand? It was a legion of demons. I think it was two thousand that went into these pigs, and the pigs flew off the uh, cliff, and then they all asked Jesus to leave that area because they'd all lost all of their pig revenue. 
They were telling Jesus, the demons were saying they did not want to go where these demons are that are being referenced by the Apostle Peter, locked away in this pit. But the point is that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to these very worst of all demons. This is, this is phenomenal. Jesus didn't preach the gospel, by the way, to these demons, because obviously demons cannot be saved. They're reserved for eternal punishment. They will be eternally punished. So if Jesus didn't preach the gospel to them, what did he preach? He made a proclamation to those spirits now in prison that his death gave him all authority, all victory, and all dominion over them. I mean, it's like a victory lap. I don't watch much NASCAR, but I guess once they win... I've watched some F1 stuff. Once they win, they take the checkered flag and they do a victory lap. They're just going around there and all their fans are cheering. Then they come to the middle. I can't remember what it's called. (laughs) And then they like, you know, do this big burnout and tear up the, you know, road and they tear up the grass and they just celebrate. And then I think they pour milk on themselves. If I remember right, I can't, I can't remember. But Jesus, I'm, I'm digressing. Jesus, think about this. After this suffering, Jesus went to those particular demons in that pit and made a victory lap, proclaiming to them his dominion and authority. See, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, we were promised in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a Messiah. He would come. Remember, his heel would crush the serpent's head and it would bruise his heel. Then throughout all of human history, the enemy, Satan, has worked tirelessly to destroy the coming Messiah. And even when Jesus was born, the enemy kept trying to snuff him out early in life, if you recall. And and now having finally brought about the death of the Messiah on the cross, the demons must have been gleeful. I I don't really know if demons can high-five one another. I kind of doubt it. But at any rate, they were happy in as much as they could be in that evil, maniacal, happy way, I guess, that demons could be. But I'm digressing again. Jesus was dead, and they would have felt that they, they, they had won until he showed up and gave a proclamation of his ultimate power and victory and authority. He wouldn't have proclaimed his victory over sin. Man, he would have proclaimed his victory over sin and death and hell and those demons and all other authority. This is what it means when Paul uh, writes in Colossians 2.15, when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. What a victory. What a victory. It's good for us to remember that the one that we follow has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And how did he obtain that authority? He was obedient through suffering, even to the point of death. Third variable of his victory is this. He has victoriously delivered us. A victorious deliverance. Listen to this passage. This part says, when The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the Apostle Peter goes on here And you have to be careful as you're reading this to really understand the analogy that the Apostle Peter is making. 
He's pointing out to us that God was gracious and waited 120 years to give the people uh, back in the time of Noah an opportunity to repent, but they refused to do so. And then the Apostle Peter says that the same way the ark saved those eight people is the same way that we are now being saved by Christ. The baptism that the Apostle Peter refers to is simply analogous to an immersion. In the same way that Noah and his family were immersed in the ark, protected, so we are immersed, protected, saved in Christ. This is not to say that water baptism actually saves you. That's not what he meant here. That's why the casual reading of Scripture is sometimes dangerous. Peter makes this even more clear, that he's not referring to water baptism as your salvation when he says that it's not the removal of dirt of the flesh. What he's wanting to tell us is that in the same way Noah's family was immersed in the ark and brought safely through the storm, so we are now saved through Christ, brought into eternal life and the safety that his salvation offers. In the same way that the ark was the only way Noah's family could be saved, so it is now through Jesus Christ, the only way that we can be saved. It is the only name given under heaven by which men can be saved. By the way, salvation doesn't occur by any other means or right, including water baptism. We know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And uh, Peter was adamant about it. Paul was even more adamant about it, that there would be no other gospel that we could never boast in any other thing that we're going to do. It's Christ and Him alone. All right, the final variable in this victory that the Apostle Peter points out, (laughs) that almost sounded like a riddle, the final variable of this victory that the Apostle Peter points out, say that quickly five times, it's His victorious authority. It's His victorious authority. So in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, in authority and authorities and powers had been subjected to him after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him jesus is now seated at the right hand of god this is a place of power and authority and dominion and superiority and sovereignty it reminds me of what the apostle uh, paul wrote in philippians 2 he said for this reason also god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. And and those of us who know him will willingly, with joy, and with glory, we will, we will confess that he is Lord, and others in pain and agony will bow the knee. But he is in dominion because of his suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. This is obviously an example of the greatest victory, the greatest triumph ever of the suffering of a righteous person. Remember that the Apostle Peter is talking us, uh, and, and, uh, talking us through the to the victory that Jesus won and helping us understand the victory that Jesus won in order that we could endure suffering and see that there's victory in our suffering and through our suffering. 
So after he talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God, he says he's gone into heaven. This is an event that the Apostle Peter would have seen himself. We learn from Acts chapter 1. It recounts the story of the ascension of Jesus, and it says, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind them, or beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, you know, why are you looking? He's ascended. and they're, I mean, why, why would they not be looking? No, no, no. This guy, he's in a redeemed, glorified, amazing body. He's walking through walls. He's been seen by 500 people. He's, he's coming and he's going and he's, and he's teaching us these amazing things. And he said, all authority has been given to me. Then he ascends into heaven. He's lifted up into the air. Of course, they're looking. And then the angels say, oh, that's the same way he's coming back. And he's coming back for us, his bride. He is coming back again. As sure as he was here, as soon as as sure as he was born and died and was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, he's coming back. It's just a good reminder for us to know that we have a sovereign God and Father. We have a superior, preeminent Savior in Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. We've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's living on the inside of us that's illuminating the Word of God to us every day. There is no authority in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can compare to the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is also why scriptures say that we can resist the enemy and he will flee from us. I don't give a whole lot of thought to Satan and to demons, to be honest with you. You'll never hear me say that, uh, man, Satan is really on my case. The devil did this, or the devil made me do that, or the devil made me do the other. I've, I've heard televangelists pray more, like they start praying, and they're talking more to Satan than they are to Jesus. Have you ever heard this? Jesus put nowhere. He, Jesus wants us talking to him. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. And yeah, deliver us from evil, but that's not an issue. That's, I don't think we should ever be talking to those demons that are completely subject to our Savior. You say, well, you got to bind up the strong man. No, that was Jesus teaching that he would bind up the strong man. And we have an advocate in Christ Jesus. And he's the one that we focus on. He's the one that we talk to. Just imagine, if Satan were sovereign, he'd just kill all of us right now. But he has no authority in the life of the believer unless it comes through and passes through the hands of our sovereign God that can be trusted. Some Christians talk about the devil and demons. Man, some of the way they talk about it, you'd think Satan would be sovereign over the world. I just want to remind you that the devil is God's pawn. When our perfect Savior died on the cross bearing our sins, he went all the way to the pit of the worst hell of the worst demons and proclaimed his great victory. Jesus has victory over sin and over death and over hell and over demons and over Satan himself. The enemy hates that authority that we have in Christ. 
Every spiritual authority must bow down to the authority of Jesus Christ. He's far above all authority and dominion and power. And this is how he leads us into all triumph and all victory. He leads us into victory because he is completely victorious. He's in dominion over all. This is why we can look to him and his suffering and his victory and know that in our suffering, since we're in him, we are victorious too. I hope you feel that today. My prayer for you this week is that you would see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and all of his power and dominion and all of his authority. Be reminded, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of God's nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This is the Messiah, the Master that we serve, Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd walk with him this week and be a blessing to those around you. Praying for you. God bless you.